Well, I grew up in, in Michigan and uh, was and from a little town that was right on the shores of Lake Michigan. In fact, my house was just a few minutes from the beach. And uh, if you know anything about the shores of uh, western Michigan, uh, they are covered with white sand and there are huge sand dunes that surround the lake. And so we were from this little beach community and one of our favorite pastimes in the summer as kids, uh, our youth group would hang out almost every evening in the summer at the beach. One of the favorite games that we would play, inevitably, a game of King of the Mountain would break out on one of these sand dunes. These sand dunes were huge. And it was a relatively safe uh, game to play because you could fall about 10 or 15 feet off the side of one of these sand dunes, but you landed in soft sand. And so it was, uh, it was perfectly safe. No one ever got hurt. Uh, guys and girls would often play together. And we'd start out and we'd be pushing our way and clawing our way to the top of the mountain. And then uh, the idiot boys uh, would get a little wild and get a little out of control and get a little ruthless. And before you knew it, a fight would break out between the two remaining guys. But eventually somebody would make it to the top of the sand dune and they would stand there and they would declare, I am the king of the mountain, which was really the king of nothing uh, because the girls had long since left. For me, when I think about this story, it's such a perfect picture of politics. And some aspiring for greatness in the arena, uh, they seek it in the arena of uh, the political arena. And they scratch and they claw their way to the top of the mountain with little regard for who gets in their way. And the end justifies the mean because at the end of the day, they just want that title. This morning we're starting a, a new two-week mini-series called Politically Incorrect. And contrary to what it sounds like, this series is, uh, the title of this series is a little bit of a play on words. Uh, we're not going to really get into politics per se today. The name of the message this morning, the title of the message is actually Power and Greatness and How Influence is Gained. And since we're right in the heart of primary season, I think that primary uh, season, the election season, offers a good contrast to what the Bible tells us about true power and greatness. I think that politics... Uh, is a pretty clear picture of how our culture defines power and greatness. And I think exhibit A for that is the 20 or so uh, men and women that are fighting so desperately to win your approval so they can crown themselves king. So let's get interactive here for just a second. Uh, how many of you, and my hand is raised, how many of you are actually enjoying the chaos and the tension and the drama that's coming from this political season? Okay, can anybody admit that they're, yeah, that's right. I see some of you. Come on. That's right. It makes for good television. It's entertaining. And it's fascinating how the world's power system works. In the world's economy, power and greatness are often seen through the lens of political power. And the person that can direct the behavior of the largest group of citizens gets to claim the title of king. And then what happens is we come along and we get so caught up in the frenzy of it all. And this happens to me, before you know it, you're, you're saying things, you're reacting to things, you're posting things that are so out of character for who you are and who you really want to be. People are always asking us here at Liberty Heights Church, I've heard the question a hundred times, uh, why don't we get involved more in politics here, Liberty Heights Church? Now it's not because we're short on opinion, okay? I have lots of opinion. In fact, I pride myself on having an opinion about everything under the sun, and we were just having this conversation last night with, with Shannon. I, I said, you know, everybody should have an opinion about everything. And she says, believe it or not, some people are content just not to have an opinion about everything. And I said, well, you know what I call people like that? 
I call them losers. And she says, do you know what I call people like that? Likeable. But listen, the real reason this morning that we avoid politics is not because we're short of opinions. I'm talking now as a church. But it's because the political arena and its rhetoric bring no or have no power to bring about spiritual transformation that our society so desperately needs. Pastor John MacArthur, who I think is one of the most knowledgeable people alive right now when it comes to anything concerning the Bible, he echoes these thoughts in his book, Why the Government Can't Save You. And after giving a similar answer as to why he doesn't get involved in politics as a pastor, he makes these statements. He says, please don't misunderstand me. I don't believe that we should remove ourselves from the political process. Okay, so let's just establish that as the baseline this morning, because I know some of you are worried. Okay, I'm not suggesting this morning that we remove ourselves from the political process. As Christian citizens, he says, we exercise important responsibilities. Many of the issues at stake today are close to our hearts. These virtues and morals and principles uh, that Christians should consider righteous are continually under attack. He wrote this actually some years ago, but it's uh, even more true today. He goes on to say, he says, while I'm disturbed by the anti-Christian and the morally debauched culture that we live in, I'm also concerned about the hostile Christian response to the culture by some believers and even churches and Christian ministries. He says, appalled by the lack of biblical morality or sense of justice, believers have been told to take the spiritual battle to the streets. And then he goes on to say that he's concerned about the prevailing mindset that makes political and social activism the chief concern or the primary concern of the church today. This reminds me of a familiar account that's recorded in the Gospels. And we see uh, in several of the Gospels, but especially in the Gospel of John, we see the account of Jesus uh, feeding 5,000 people. Now, Jesus was at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, this is in John chapter 6. He's at the beginning of his ministry, and uh, he's, he's teaching people. He's an incredible teacher. He has an incredible way with words. He has a beautiful ability to tell a story. It wasn't unusual at this time for, uh, for a teacher to make their living by traveling from town to town. And Jesus was the hottest ticket in town. Uh, the crowds loved him. And one day they were following him around and they followed him into the countryside and onto the side of a mountain as it overlooked, um, overlooked the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus realizes that he has a very captive audience. He also realizes that he has a very hungry audience. Unfortunately, his personal assistant had failed to organize a food truck rally. And so he uh, and his friends, uh, they go on a search to see who, has, who brought food that day, and they find one brown paper bag lunch. And so Jesus, using that lunch, and in an attempt to show the people that he was more than just a teacher, he miraculously feeds all 5,000 people. It's his way of showing them that he was God. And man, the crowds go crazy. Okay, they decide right then and right there that they're going to elect him as king. And so they're going to have an election right there on the side of the mountain. Now you have to understand the political climate of, uh, of this day. So that the Jews were living under Roman oppression. And the Romans allowed them to play church as long as they didn't get out of control. But it wasn't a pleasant system to live under. Uh, they were maybe the, heavily, the most heavily taxed people uh, in all of history. The Romans were brutally oppressive. The Jews longed for a political savior. They longed for somebody that would come along and lead this rebellion and overthrow these Romans. That would rewrite all these laws and that would establish God as the, center, the central point of the government once again. 
This was a good thing. We see Jesus' reaction to this in John chapter 6, verse 15. And Jesus then, uh, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. Jesus pulled back. He wanted nothing to do with it. Now listen, this could have been the ultimate power grab, okay? The timing was absolutely perfect. He could lead this uprising. He could abolish all of these immoral laws. He could rightfully put God back at the center of government. Okay, he could force people to worship God. He could legislate morality. Imagine what Jesus could have done with the power. Except for one thing. Jesus did not come to accrue power. Jesus came to give it up. So this morning, let's dig into God's word. I want to examine three statements this morning that should impact our understanding of what it means to have true power and greatness. Okay, three statements or three principles that we have to understand uh, as we seek influence. The first principle this morning is the answer to the question, um, how did Jesus define greatness? If we want to maximize our influence in in the kingdom, if we want to maximize our influence in our community for Christ, what's the best way to do it? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, what approach should you take? And this is what Jesus said. He said, service, not political power, is the most effective way to gain influence. Service, not political power, is the most effective way to gain influence. We see this in Matthew chapter 20. Let me take you there this morning. Let me read from verse 25, Matthew chapter 20. But Jesus called to them, the disciples... And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Authority here uh, should be really the word dominion. It's it's a negative connotation. 26, he says, uh, verse 26, he says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me clear this up real quick. This passage is sometimes used uh, to speak to the idea that Jesus is spurning the idea of legal authority in government. He's absolutely not. It's not what's going on here. We know in Romans chapter 13 that the Bible affirms the proper role of government and rulers. But it's interesting what's happening here. In this passage, Jesus is really settling an argument uh, amongst the disciples. Okay, now, uh, the disciples, actually, two of the, their mom came to Jesus, okay? Can you see this happening? Their mom came to Jesus and said, hey, we'd like to see our sons on the left and the right hand when it comes to heaven. Uh, they, they were jockeying for a seat at the table. And then the other ten disciples find out about this, and they're like, what? You had your mom come and ask that? And so they got mad. It, the Bible says they got indignant. And so they're having this fight. Who's going to have a better seat at the table in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is like, whoa, just a minute. You guys are acting like the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Caesar uh, operate in the same capacity. They're not anything alike. He says these two kingdoms are run with completely different principles in totally separate arenas with totally separate goals. He says that the way that these kingdoms leverage their power and influence is radically different. Jesus here was saying that the Gentile leaders, that this would have been a literal reference to the Roman emperor, uh, Caesar, who at that time would have been Tiberius. And he was saying that this Roman government, they dominate in a dictatorial fashion. They use carnal power and authority over you. 
But as Christians, he said, you are to lead by being servants and by giving yourself away to each other. He's literally saying here that the very thing that defines power and greatness in Caesar's kingdom are epic fails when it comes to true greatness in God's economy. He's so emphatic in the original language, he says, it shall not be so among you. This week as I was studying, I noticed that there's nowhere in this passage, in fact, I looked uh, through the rest of Scripture, I found nowhere where the church is commissioned to advance the cause of Christ through legal maneuvering and through political means. It's nowhere in Scripture. I love the story of Paul. So Paul the missionary, Paul the preacher, couldn't stop preaching. He was like the Energizer Bunny. He just wouldn't stop. And they would tell him over and over, you've got to stop preaching, we're going to arrest you. And it wouldn't matter, he would keep on preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And finally he gets arrested for repeatedly uh, failing to heed their warnings. And Paul is a Roman citizen, so he immediately exercises his, his right to appeal his case directly to Caesar. Now this was the equivalent of getting a speeding ticket and going to the Supreme Court over it. But listen, Paul didn't do this in an effort to gain an audience with Caesar and to influence his public policy, to debate him about the morality of laws. No, Paul did this, we're told, because he longed so badly to get to Rome to preach the gospel. And this was his free ride there. He didn't care that he was in handcuffs. He didn't care that he was in chains. He wasn't going to protest his treatment from the, at the hands of the Roman officials. He was going there to preach the gospel. And he had an audience of Caesar and Caesar's household. Would I be thrilled if America were to elect a president who believed in Scripture and followed its principles without compromise? Absolutely I would. But here's the reality of it. I also recognize, and we recognize here at Liberty Heights, that the kingdom of God is ultimately not advanced by flexing political muscle. Let me tell you how the kingdom of God is advanced. Uh, I met this friend, in, I was in ninth grade and she was in eighth grade. We went to a small Christian school. Uh, there wasn't anything romantic like that, but we were just, uh, all, this whole group of friends, we were all friends together. And she came from a tough situation, tough family situation. Her dad had been a pastor and had had, had a moral failing. And it just had a lot of negative uh, repercussions on her family. And over the years throughout high school, they moved around a lot and eventually moved away from the area. And I lost track of her and her story for a lot of years. But she had walked away from the, the gospel, had walked away from the church. Uh, she'd married, uh, honestly, the guy was, sounded like a loser. Um, just was a bad guy. And so she decided that things would get better if they could have kids. And so they had children. They had one, two, and then eventually had three children. But things continued to get so badly for her that eventually she packed up the kids and she left her husband. And about that time, there was a grandma in her life. It wasn't actually her grandma, but it was a grandmotherly figure who just begins investing in her life, begins loving on her, uh, begins pouring into her life, begins taking care of her needs as a single mom. Can you imagine uh, trying to work and having kids that were young and trying to feed them and get them to school and all the different activities? And she just started loving on them. And eventually she invited my friend back into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in 2010, my friend started attending this brand new little church plant that was located in the town that I told you about earlier that we grew up in. And God began doing an amazing thing in her life. And she began being counseled by one of the pastors there. And as she grew in her own holiness, she realized her need to continue to love on her husband even though she was separated from him. 
And so she and this grandma started loving on her husband, and eventually her husband agreed uh, to do marriage counseling here at this church. Before you know it, he'd accepted Christ. Before you know it, his life was, was uh, he was growing in personal holiness, just like his wife had been. And eventually God restored their marriage as a result of their pursuit of holiness. And they got plugged in at this church, and they got plugged into a life group. And uh, before you know it, they had a friend of, uh, some friends of theirs that weren't saved. They, their marriage was on the rocks, and they started coming to their life group, and they got saved. And God did a radical thing in their lives and restored their marriage. And my friend got so involved in this church that um, as the church grew, the church decided to hire her as the pastor's personal assistant. And the story goes, on the first day on the job, she hadn't been sitting at her desk but just a few minutes, when in off the street walked a young woman who had just left her husband, didn't know where else to turn. But she knew that this church and this town had a reputation for loving people like her, and while she didn't understand it, and she didn't know what she was going to try to accomplish by going there, she just went to the church, and she met my friend. My friend, of course, introduced her to Jesus, and also introduced her to this grandma. And what do you think this grandma did? Started loving on her. Started help meeting her needs. Started helping taking care of her children. And before you know it, her husband agreed to come to marriage counseling at the church. Before you know it, he'd been introduced to Jesus. And God started doing an amazing thing in his life. And as he grew in his holiness, guess what happened? God restored their marriage. And then it happened again. And before you know it, there were four couples in this life group and my friend and, his, and her husband uh, actually branched off and started their own life group. And the pastor today of the church gives testimony of how God, through this grandma, had influenced how, how they had grown. And this little church that started in 2010 with nobody, in 2016 in Easter last weekend, they had several thousand people in their services. Because this church understands what it means to love on people. It understands what it means to serve people. They understand that true greatness and influence comes from loving people. It's an incredible story that I love telling. If you ask any of those four couples who the most influential person in their life is, it's not the governor, it's not the president, it's not the mayor, it's this grandma. It's a fun story. It brings us to our second point this morning. second statement I want to examine for just a minute is that the gospel, not the law, is what changes sinful hearts. The gospel, not the law, is what changes sinful hearts. In the New Testament book of Galatians, uh, this is a letter that uh, Paul, that we just spoke about a minute ago, had written uh, to some church leaders. And Paul is battling these Jewish teachers. They actually were called Judaizers. And these Judaizers were teaching that in order to um, find righteousness, you had to obey the law. So Jesus had come and had offered uh, forgiveness and offered redemption, and yet these Judaizers are saying, well, before you come to Jesus, you have to obey the ceremonial law. We see in uh, Galatians chapter 2, Paul addresses this air head on. A uh, very famous, uh, or a very um, familiar verse, I guess I should say, is in uh, a verse earlier in Galatians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. It says, for I'm crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then look what verse 21 says of Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, Now I do not nullify or set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness 
were through the law, if righteousness could be gained through the law, he says, then Christ died for no purpose or Christ died for nothing. Paul's talking here about the Old Testament law, the old system of do's and don'ts. And Paul says, man, if righteousness can come from obeying the law, then we don't need Christ. You may have heard us say often that uh, Christmas and Easter are the bookends of the Christian faith. And so you have Christmas where Jesus, uh, God comes down to earth in the form of Jesus. And Jesus lives the perfect sinless life, but ultimately is innocently uh, gives up his life for us. Okay, and then God showing the power over death raises him back to life. And those two events become the bookends of our faith. And Paul is saying here this morning, listen, if righteousness comes from obeying the law, then you don't even need Christmas and Easter. They're pointless. In other words, if righteousness can be brought about by legislation, then the whole gospel would be needless. Paul goes on to say later in the chapter in Galatians, he says this, he said, if there had been a law given which could have given life, in other words, if we could write a law uh, that produced life, then righteousness would have been that law. Again, the point that Paul is trying to make, he's referring back to this law of Moses. And we think of the Ten Commandments, but it was so much more. It was 600 do's and don'ts of things that the, God's people had to abide by. And Paul's writing that the law, it wasn't given to bring righteousness. The law was given to expose you to your sinfulness. The law was given to awaken you to your sin. The law was given uh, to reveal the exceeding sinfulness of sin. I don't know if you're allowed to uh, define a word with a word, but that's what he did. The law came to, de, to reveal the sinfulness of sin. And it came to eliminate every possible option for salvation, except for Jesus Christ. See, the law didn't lay out a way of salvation because the law is powerless when it comes to transforming hearts. And so if that was true about the law of Moses, which came directly from God, then how much truer is it about our own laws that come about through political wrangling and compromise now listen, I think that we would all agree this morning that law has a pretty good place in our society, okay? None of us this morning want to live in a lawless society. But when it comes to the question of how a Christian might transform an already evil society, the answer lies in proclaiming the gospel, not in campaigning for legislation. Let me give you an example of this. Beginning of the 20th century, if you're a student of history... Uh, you'll uh, know what I'm about to tell you, that practically every evangelical uh, community and every e evangelical leader in America used their political clout to pass a constitutional amendment, not just a law, but a constitutional amendment. It was the 18th Amendment, the United States Constitution, making it illegal to manufacture, sell, or transport alcoholic beverages in America. And the leaders declared that this law, the evangelical leaders declared that this law this amendment to the Constitution, okay, they declared that it would elevate the spiritual climate in America. And the reality of it, they were dead wrong. Prohibition unleashed a wave of organized crime, uh, something that we've never recovered from. In fact, America started in on a binge that 13 years later, it couldn't be, uh, couldn't be stopped when they repealed that uh, amendment. And here we are now, how many decades later dealing with this massive problem of drunkenness? And it's a society problem. And as Christians, we know that it's the gospel that offers the only true hope to these types of problems. 
As I said earlier, laws have a rightful place in restraining evil and punishing evildoers. But if your goal is really the transformation and the redemption of culture, it's the law, the law is not the proper tool for that. It's the gospel that does that. It's why our church will never divert our energies and our resources away from gospel-related activities under the delusion that the best and the most important way to fix society is through campaigning for legislation. It's not. Probably the most um, visible representation of the law is a police officer. Okay, if you were to try try to drive down I-75 on any given day uh, during the week through Westchester into Sharonville towards 275, you're going to see a police officer at almost every single turnaround. Um, Listen, their presence is a good thing, right? Because it makes everybody slow down. It's a good thing unless you're in a hurry. But it changes the behavior of these people that are driving down the road. Another hypothetical situation, if you were to take your wife down to a Bengals playoff game against the Squealers, you, you would be grateful to see a lot of policemen on your walk back to your car after a devastating loss. Because generally speaking, their presence helps change the behavior of some pretty rowdy fans. You may or may not know this. We employ an off-duty police officer uh, here at church for every single, to be here every single service. And the reason that we do this is because we know that uh, the, the police officer's presence tends to dissuade the bad guys from doing bad things. Okay, that's why we have them here. But at the end of the day, it's all behavior modification. None of it is heart transformation. It's not the law, it's not the presence of these police officers that changes people's hearts. It's only the gospel that changes their hearts. It's only the gospel that produces righteousness. And that's why the the gospel never calls you to be a political lobbyist. It never calls you to be a cultural jihadist. Another writing of Paul in the uh, book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. See, we are commissioned to be ambassadors for the gospel because it's the gospel, not the law, that transforms lives. It's the gospel, not the law, that brings people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to our last point this morning. It's this, our true citizenship should be what defines us. Our true citizenship should be what defines us. If you've ever sat through very many Bible studies of mine, you'll know that my favorite book of the Bible is this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church leaders. And in the third part of that book, he's actually describing people that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says this, he says, they're enemies of the cross. And he goes on to describe them, but then he shifts his focus to the Christ follower. And he says this about the Christ follower in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. A very familiar verse, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven. Now listen, this analogy might not mean much to you, but this analogy uh, would have had a huge, deep meaning, deeply, uh, a deep meaning to the original audience. They would have understood what it meant uh, to, be, to hear that they were citizens of heaven. So Philippi was a, a Roman colony. It was located about 800 miles east of Rome. 
And the territory surrounding Philippi uh, was all under Roman control. But if you lived in these other territories, you didn't have Roman citizenship. But if you lived in Philippi, even though it was 800 miles out of the country, you enjoyed everything that came with being a Roman citizen. The reason was because Philippi was like our Florida. It was where people retired to. And so government officials and soldiers and um, ex-officers in the, uh, in the army would retire to Philippi. And so they granted the, the, the um, citizens of Philippi, they granted them Roman citizenship. Okay, so when Paul says that uh, we are citizens of heaven, this word citizenship would have jumped right off the page at them. Roman citizenship was so important because it allowed you to vote, to, uh, to, hold, um, to hold office. It allowed you to own property. It allowed you to be exempt from certain taxes. It allowed you to the, uh, have the right to a fair trial. You couldn't be beaten or you couldn't be tortured if you're a Roman citizen. A lot of the same rights that we have as Americans uh, were these types of things that gave them their citizenship. And it was the um, things that they enjoyed as a result of their citizenship. Imagine if we didn't have these same rights. But Paul says here, wait a minute. Don't let your Roman citizenship be what defines you because you're a citizen of heaven. Let your heavenly citizenship be what defines you. Shannon and I are coming up on our 20th anniversary, and we were, um, we were married in, a, uh, in August of 1996, smack dab in the middle of the Summer Olympics. And if you remember that summer, uh, the craze that summer was to wear patriotic gear. You could get uh, a hat that was a flag, you could get a leather jacket that was a flag, you could get blue jeans that were made out of a flag. In fact, my favorite was uh, Chuck Taylor Converse High Top Sneakers. You could get the old stars and stripes right on your shoes. And if you were to turn on a television event and, and watch any of the sporting events during the Olympics, you could immediately make out who the Americans were. You could easily spot the Americans. They were super easy to spot. There was little question of where they were from. There was little question of their citizenship. That's what Paul's saying here this morning. He's saying that you're a citizen of heaven and so as a citizen of heaven, let me ask you this question. How easy are you to spot? Okay, not, not because the religious words that come out of your mouth, but because of the things that you do. How easy are you to spot? What would your friends know you by? What would your friends and family know? Would they first and foremost know that you are a citizen of heaven? A famous preacher once said this. He said there should literally be no more difficulty in detecting the Christians from the worldly person than in discovering a sheep from a goat or a lamb from a wolf. A friend of mine was recently recounting a story that involved a mutual friend of ours. And when he told me about how a friend had reacted in a certain situation, I said, whoa, that, that just doesn't sound anything like something our friend would have said. My friend's response was, well, you only know this person on Sundays, but I know this person the rest of the week. In other words, what he was saying is that this really wasn't that out of character for our friend to have said this. And I was horrified. It was a terrible thing to have said and to be known for saying. And I was appalled because I know that this person has heavenly citizenship. But their actions betrayed their citizenship. Let me tell you another implication about our heavenly citizenship. Uh, this citizenship, this heavenly citizenship should determine the types of things on which we spend our time and energy. What are the things that you're most passionate about? 
For instance, are we more motivated by what's going on in the White House than what's going on in the house next door, the spiritual condition of our friends and neighbors? I think one of the greatest preachers in the last 150 years was this British preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. You may have heard him. And back in 1862, he delivered a sermon called, Our Citizenship is in Heaven. And he delivered this in London. Uh, he's actually talking about the fact that as citizens of heaven, we are aliens here on earth. And we don't really belong here. He says, we are simply passing through this earth and should bless it in our transit, but should never yoke ourselves to its affairs. He says, an Englishman may be happy to be in Spain. He wishes a thousand things were different from what they are, but he does not trouble himself much about them, says he. If I were a Spaniard, I would see what I could do to alter this government. But being an Englishman, let the Spaniards see to their own matters. I will be back to my own country by and by. The sooner, the better. And so this morning, as noble as it is to have a desire to reform society, as stirring as the emotion sometimes is, uh, sometimes are when you are involved in a political cause that you believe to be right, these activities are not to be a Christian's chief priorities. I told Shannon last night, I said, I'm a little nervous about this message today because I think some people are going to sit back and just discount what I'm saying because you, you might be asking yourself this this morning. You might be saying, so I, I can't get involved in a good cause. Or, or so I just have to sit around and do nothing. See, that's not at all what we're saying this morning. But we, what we are saying is that activism looks differently through the lens of the gospel. And so whatever you do, whether it's a political or otherwise, all your actions, every move you make should be filtered through these statements that we've studied this morning. And this stuff takes work. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. Uh, most of you guys are probably aware or have seen uh, Pastor Kyle and Heidi's little guy running around. Uh, Shannon and I think he's just one of the most adorable little men around. And uh, we, we, we look for every opportunity to be able to babysit him. And I know that uh, some of you think the same thing because I see you with your little three-year-old daughters and you're jockeying for position already, okay? Uh, we see that. But Kyle and I were talking about this message this week and we were brainstorming some things. And we were talking about the extra step that love requires and the intentionality that it takes. And one of the things that Kyle and Heidi are working uh, on with their little guy is to be extra kind, that's how they're trying to teach the three-year-old what it means to take an extra step, the extra step that love requires, to be extra kind, not just kind, but extra kind. And so every day when Kyle drives a um, little guy into preschool in the car on the way there, Kyle says, okay, now today you have to be extra kind. And he says, uh, his little fellow will often say, Daddy, I just want to be kind today, not extra kind. It's too hard. And it is. It doesn't come naturally. It takes work. It's not easy. But the church will really only change society for the better when individual believers make their chief concern their own personal holiness. If you were to come in and we were to uh, work through some marriage counseling, I'll often say to a husband, listen, I'm not as concerned about your marriage as I am about your personal holiness. I'll often say to a wife, listen, I'm not as concerned about the terrible things that you're telling me your husband does as I am about your personal holiness. Because here's what happens as we grow in our personal holiness. Our godly living combined with our godly 
activities brings credibility to the gospel, brings credibility to the message that we're trying to share with those people around us. So I hope this morning that you're reminded of your heavenly citizenship. You know, we desire that everybody would be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We would desire that you all would be easy to spot as Christians, not because of the religious words that come out of your mouth, but because of the way that you love people, the way that you serve people. Hope today that you'll be encouraged, encouraged because of your citizenship to shift your focus back to the very first thing we said this morning, that the best way to gain influence, the best way to be great and powerful in God's kingdom is to be an ambassador for Christ by loving and serving those around you. Do we think that America can be turned around? We absolutely do, but here's how it's going to happen. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit and one person at a time. And we have the tools, the only tool available to see real change take place in people's lives, and that's the gospel. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? This morning's subject has a tendency to, or may have had a tendency to step on a few toes. We've tried to be gentle in our approach, but bold in our proclamation that the gospel is the only thing that can change lives. And this morning we've talked an awful lot about Christ followers and what that looks like to a Christ follower. Maybe this morning you don't have a relationship with Christ. Maybe if you were honest with yourself this morning, you're like, I'm probably not the Christ follower that you speak of. And so first and foremost, we just want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing would make us happier this morning than to see another life transformed by the gospel. And listen, when I tell the stories about the the gospel transforming lives, I don't mean to pretend and say that the gospel will fix all your problems. But God will give you the strength to walk through your problems. And he'll do an amazing thing in the process as he changes your heart. And so I want to pray for you this morning. It's really an easy thing to do. It's an easy prayer to pray. It's easy in the words, but it's difficult because you're giving your life to Jesus Christ. Things will never be the same. So I want to invite you to pray the prayer with me this morning. God, if there was someone here this morning that longs for a relationship with you, that longs for you to come and change their life, God, maybe they've been trying for some time to do it on their own, that they've been trying to pull up their bootstraps and just work harder and try harder and God, it's not working for them. Would you help them understand this morning the power of the Holy Spirit, would you impress upon them the need for a Savior? And God, right now, would they pray and ask you to come into their lives, God, that you would be the king of their lives, that you would be the savior of their lives, that you would, God, forgive them of all the sinful areas in their lives, all those ways that they disappoint you, all those ways that they fall short of meeting your expectations for our holiness. God, come into their life and change them and save them this morning. And God, for everyone else that's here this morning that claims to have a relationship with you, would you help us grow in our boldness? 
Would you help us to to grow in our ability so that others can spot the fact that we are a Christ follower, that others would see that something is different and unique about us by the way that we love on people. And God, would would you bring us people that would ask us the question about the hope that we have and give us the ability to share your redeeming truth. God, we thank you for the gospel that changes lives. I thank you for the gospel that has changed me. God, I think of who I used to be before I was in a relationship with you and who I am now that you saved me and you changed me. I'm a new creature and I thank you for that. And I want to honor you with my citizenship, which is in heaven this morning. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.